0: Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure and it's a great honor to be here. Um, last night, uh, this is not my first visit to Dallas, but last night, my one of my hosts, Perry, I don't know if he's here today, um, um, took me by the Texas State Fairgrounds. There he is, and. I asked him to do that because 78 years ago this fall, my father had a photograph taken of himself at the Texas State Fair. And there's a big sign behind him that says Texas State Fair 1933. Uh, he was working as a racetrack tout, um, um, you know, traveling the country going from one uh, ho- horse race to another. Um, and as I said, this was 78 years ago. Um, uh, the world has certainly changed, and what I'm going to talk about today is how it's changing in ways that the headlines do not capture. Um, we've, all been, um, we've all been prisoners of two things, the Mercator projection and Cold War area studies. Um, first, let me take the Mercator projection. Um, think of a map, you know, the normal rectangular map of the world where in in our part of the world North and South America are in the center and uh, the the Atlantic Ocean is in the center and the Indian and Western Pacific Oceans are at the edges as though at the edges of consciousness split up. Um, That's a false map for understanding the 21st century because in a 21st century map uh, the center point as I will argue is the Indian Ocean Um, In 2050, we're going to have 9 billion people in the world, and 7 billion are going to live in the greater Indian Ocean area. That includes Africa, the greater Middle East, the Indian subcontinent, and and the Western Pacific, which is organically connected to the Indian Ocean through the Lombok, Sunda, Makassar, and Malacca Straits, um, and, and others. We've also been prisoners of Cold War area studies. At the end of World War II, the United States found itself a a great global power, the preeminent global power. And in order to manage the world, it needed experts. So it divided the world artificially into the Middle East, the Near East, Central Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia, East Asia, um, and and, and other divisions. These divisions were necessary to develop specialists, um, but they also fought fostered an artificial understanding of the world where what happened in South Asia stayed in South Asia. What happened in the Middle East stayed in the Middle East, and and on and on. But actually, what's been going on, especially since the end of the Cold War, is a fluid, organic interaction between areas. Uh, For example, the North Koreans in the Far East give the Syrians in the Middle East nuclear technology, eliciting an Israeli military response. Um, India in South Asia and China in East Asia compete for natural gas rights in Iran in the Middle East. Um, India and China um, compete for gold, timber, time, uh, diamonds, uh, hydropower, and natural gas in Burma in Southeast Asia. Um, these are... These are interactions and dynamics that span areas. So we have to think less in terms of these Cold War areas and more in terms of an organic Eurasia stretching all the way from Europe to the Far East um, with a greater Middle East that really takes in um, the East Coast of Africa spanning all the way to the Burmese jungles and beyond. Um, (coughs) To talk about Eurasia, the maritime organizing principle of Eurasia is the greater Indian Ocean, which is from the Horn of Africa to the South China Sea, um, all the way from Somalia and Yemen, um, all the way to China, um, up to the confines of Taiwan almost. Um, now, in this world, especially the Indian Ocean proper, what makes it unique is that it's been governed uh, forever by the monsoon winds. Let me explain the monsoon winds. When Americans hear the word monsoon, they tend to think of a storm system, of disaster, of turbulence. while, in fact, the monsoon is a good thing, it means agricultural prosperity, the renewal of the crops, the seasons. Um, when there's an election soon after the monsoon, and the monsoon has been good, it's been a good monsoon, the government in power in India will tend to do better um, in the voting, because it will help the economy. Um, now, what, what's important for us in terms of the monsoon is that unlike any other wind patterns in the world, the monsoon is utterly predictable, more or less. There are subsystems of the monsoon that are not predictable, but generally, the monsoon winds flow northeast to southwest for six months a year, then reverse themselves in a 180 degree manner, flowing from southwest to northeast. Because the wind system is utterly predictable, Sailing distances can be calculated accurately in advance and so the Indian Ocean did not have to wait until the age of steamships to unite it. Vasco da Gama, the Portuguese navigator, sailed from what is today Kenya to what is today southwest India, half the span of the Indian Ocean, several thousand miles, in 1498 in only 23 days. Um, Because he had on board an Arab navigator um, who understood the secrets of the wind system and when to sail and when not to sail. Um, Because um, the Indian Ocean was a united organic continuum back into antiquity, um, the Romans understood the monsoon winds and sailed, uh, And sailed. in fact if you go to parts of Bangladesh today you will find Roman coins. Um, that's how far the Romans got and Vasco da Gama did not discover India. All he did was reacquaint Europe with the wind system that had been lost, the knowledge of which had been lost in the Middle and Dark Ages. Um, after Roman and and Greek um, high antiquity. Um, Now, because of the monsoon winds is why we have large communities of Yemenis from Southwest Arabia living in Indonesia in the Far East, in the East Indies. It's why we have a large Malay communities from the Far East living in Madagascar, right off the coast of East Africa. It's why we have Omanis from Southeast Arabia living all along the East African coast. It's why we have Gujaratis from Northwest India living everywhere along the Indian Ocean, littoral Liter- Literally, everyone was everywhere in this ocean, thanks to the monsoon winds. And this is a an apt metaphor for understanding our own time, where we face a a fluid Eurasia rather than a a supercontinent that's artificially divided by Cold War area studies. Um, The Indian Ocean is also significant because it encompasses the entire arc of Islam from the Sahara Desert to the Indonesian and Malay archipelagos. And it shows us Islam not as a desert faith, you know, spread rapidly by the sword across the North African deserts, and therefore supposedly um, prone to the extremities of thought to which deserts give rise. But it shows us Islam as a seafaring faith, uh, as a faith spread gradually, over the centuries, by merchants, but the most cosmopolitan members of their community, spread by traders. Uh, so that's why Islam in Bangladesh, in northwestern Burma, in Malaysia, in Indonesia, uh, which encompasses in population terms half of the Islamic world, including India. Uh, why, this, this is a much different brand of Islam than we've been accustomed to reading about in Iraq uh, and about Af- Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, um, um, and, and the greater Arab and Persian world, so, um, so to speak. Um, it's, it's an Islam that has just been the top patina the overlay of a deep Javanese and Malay cultural stew. Um, it's why we have successful democracies in Indonesia, in Malaysia, in Bangladesh, and in India, which has 120 million Muslims. I think it's the third most populous Muslim population in the world after, um, um, after Pakistan and Bangladesh. Oh, the fourth, uh, I- Indonesia, I forgot. Now, In going back to this classical super region, uh, we're going to see greater interactions between the Indian Ocean and the Western Pacific. Uh, At the moment, there are just the Straits of Malacca and the others that I mentioned earlier in my talk. But in the 21st century, as the, the number of merchant shipping and and oil and natural gas shipping increases exponentially due to the rapid rise of hundreds of millions of more Asians into the middle class, Um, these straits will become increasingly crowded. And we may see land bridges and canal projects built, such as a canal across the Isthmus of Kra in southern Thailand, um, such as a land bridge across the Mal- uh, peninsular uh, Malaysia, uh, which Dubai Ports World is doing a study about. Um, the Croc Canal would cost $20 billion. Um, it would be funded by Japanese, Chinese, South Korean, and uh, other money. Uh, you know, countries that, you know, that are dependent on oil from the greater Middle East and don't want to be limited by the narrow, uh, at times, pirate-infested, environmentally sensitive, Strait of Malacca. Um, and as more ship- as shipping gets more and more crowded, these projects will be more and more tempting to do. Now, one of the reasons I'm talking so much about maritime and water and the Indian Ocean is because, though we live in a jet and information age, 90% of all global commercial goods that travel from one continent to the other do so by sea. Um, they don't because it's the cheapest way. Um, and um, uh, you 50% of all global trade um, is done in, you know, in wet in the Western Pacific, in East Asia. And more than half of all their energy comes from the Middle East, the Iranian plateau and the Saudi Arabian deserts. And the energy, the oil, the natural gas has to get from one place to the other. Um, And it's going to do so through the Strait of Malacca, through these other straits, and through these canal and land bridge projects um, that will be built. Um, Now, the great drama that's really occurring in geopolitical terms is Finally, after 500 years of Western domination, indigenous powers are rising to take control in the greater Indian Ocean and Western Pacific region. Uh, Vasco da Gama's voyage initiated 500 years of rule by the Portuguese, the Dutch, the French in southern India, the British, and finally the United States Navy and Air Force after World War II. But the United States Navy, and by naval I mean air, cyberspace, and outer space, because they cannot be disaggregated um, in today's terms. Because ships require messages and directional help from satellites in space, and and naval warfare is war by math. You know, you know, a, a lot of it is cyber driven. But let me get back to this and. Um, the United States Navy, there were 580 warships in, in the Reagan era. Uh, in the Clinton era, there were 330. Uh, we're now down to 288 warships, compar- relatively speaking, the smallest Navy we've had since World War I. Um, and some of the Congressional Budget Office estimates of what, it would, what would happen if we were to cut $500 billion from the defense budget, would be to make our Navy go down to 238 ships. Um, and, and the number of our carrier strike groups from 11 to 9 in the world. And this is crucial. Because I've, I've been to Vietnam twice this year. I've been to Malaysia. I've been to Indonesia. And everyone tells me that if you, redu- if you take out one aircraft carrier strike group, that's a game changer. And all of us, meaning the Vietnamese, the Malaysians, etc., become Finlandized by China. Um, Remember, Finland during the Cold War did not have an independent foreign policy. Its foreign policy was largely created in Moscow. It was a very ambiguous situation. And the combination of Chinese economic power, demographic power, geographical proximity, and its rising military power will be too much to bear if our Navy gets much smaller than it is. Um, And by Chinese um, economic power, all these countries that I've been mentioning have as their number one trading partner, uh, China. Let me just make an aside here. It's very ironic. But our new best friends in the world, and certainly in the greater Indian Ocean, are the Vietnamese. Um, um, The Vietnamese keep pounding away at me, saying we need more U.S. warships close to the Vietnamese coast. Um, Because... um, you know, we. You know, America has to live up to its great power responsibilities um, because uh, Vietnam, as the Vietnamese say, we fought one war against you and about forty against China. Uh, the the Chinese uh, occupied Vietnam for a thousand years. They keep referring to the war in Hanoi, but it's not. The, the war our Vietnam War it's the Chinese invasion of 1979 um, that they um, that they keep referring to um, and precisely because the Vietnamese, are seen to have defeated the US in a war, they can enter in, in, into an alliance with the US without any chips on their shoulders, axes to grind, or grudges to bear, or explanations necessary for their neighbors. Um, you know, They can do it from a point of view of psychological superiority almost. And this comes through very vividly in meetings that I've had. I was the guest of the Vietnamese Navy in Haiphong. Um, you know, uh, you know and John McCain told me, he said, it's a, he said, if you live long enough, everything comes around. You know, <laughs> you know? You know when he talked about what's happening with uh, Vietnamese U.S. relations. Back to the Indian Ocean. All right, there are two big dynamics going on. Think of China moving vertically southward toward the Indian Ocean, and and India moving horizontally eastward and westward along the Indian Ocean in terms of great power influence. Um, China is building or helping to finance massive deep water ports in Guadar and Pakistan, in Chittagong and Bangladesh, in Lamu in northern Kenya, um, in Kayuk Fru in in Burma, in Hambantota in Sri Lanka, all Indian Ocean ports um, that the Chinese are developing. There are several things going on here. One is the Chinese have what they call their Malacca dilemma. Too much of their energy requirements are forced to come through the Strait of Malacca from the Middle East, and that makes them vulnerable. So they want other ways to get oil and natural gas. By building a port at Kayuk Fru in Burma, they can take advantage of the natural gas fields in the Bay of Bengal and build a pipeline and road system across northern, northern Burma directly into, uh, into China's Yunnan province and avoid the Strait of Malacca. Eventually, in one future morrow, don't ask me when, when Pakistan is stabilized or Afghanistan is stabilized, they can have a road and rail and pipeline network going from Gwadar in southwestern Pakistan directly north into China. Another way to avoid the Strait of Malacca. So that's one thing they're doing. Another thing is they, the Chinese are very subtle. They do not intend to have naval bases at these ports because they know that would be too aggressive towards India, um, and they, you know, and they're very careful not to upset India precisely because the Chinese-Indian relationship is so tense as it is. Um, so. What the Chinese are, th- are actually doing is they're creating the 21st century equivalent of 19th century British coaling stations all along this route. Um, and they're really creating a world maritime trading empire. Um, you know, it's a great time in history to be a Chinese civil engineer. Because they are building things like we used to do when we built our great dams during the Great Depression. I was at Humbantota, uh, where the Chinese are building their deep water dam, a deep water port. I spent a night in prison in Sri Lanka because I was arrested for trespassing onto the site. So sensitive it, it, is it? Um, the, the Chinese are literally moving the coast several hundred yards inland. I've never seen so many dump trucks in all my life, like a whole divi- army division worth of dump trucks, just taking soil and moving it from the bottom to the top and switchback trails of this. Um, the, um, you know that uh, the Sri Lankan Civil War ended in 2009 after 25 years, uh, um, but what wasn't reported in the news was that the Chinese won the war. Um, after the United States and Western countries stopped all economic and diplomatic aid to the Sri Lankan government for human rights violations, the Chinese moved in with aid, advisors, everything from AK-47 assault rifles to fighter jets, giving the Sri Lankan government everything it needed to defeat the Tamil Tigers. And what's more, the Chinese defended uh, Sri Lanka at the U.N., and the Chinese gift is they're building this port, um, which is close to the world's, to the real ganglia of world sea lines, sea lines of communication, where 30,000 merchant ships pass each year. This is the new strategic geography that the United States government is not paying sufficient attention to. Um, and um, so. And, but of course, it's all very subtle. Uh, China can't have a naval base in Hambantota because Sri Lanka is just too darn close to India. And that would be almost like a declaration of hostility towards India. So China and India are playing a, a great game of sorts in Sri Lanka, Nepal, um, a, um, Bangladesh, and other places, competing for, competing for influence and, 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 and maritime rights. And in the case of Sri Lanka, in the case of Nepal, uh, you know, each side wants it to be a buffer state for the other because Nepal uh, is is situated right between India and China. Now, as the Chinese are moving south, as I said, the Indians are moving east and west along the Indian Ocean, and the Indians are um, you know it's interesting in in New Delhi now. Um, A name that you hear now in New Delhi more than you heard it 20 or 30 years ago is Lord George Nathaniel Curzon, the British Viceroy of India from 1899 to 1905. Why would a British Viceroy be so popular among Indian policy elites? Because Curzon was a strategic genius. And he looked out at the world from the position of the Indian subcontinent, not from, not from London. And so as someone said, Curzon was actually the first Indian nationalist in terms of foreign policy. Um, and Curzon's India was a greater India. It was an India that encompassed Burma, Bangladesh, Pakistan, um, all the way from the Iranian plateau to the Burmese jungles. Um, and, Curz- Curzon knew that this India would require shadow zones of influence in Central Asia, in Arabia, in the, in the Far East. Um, and that is exactly what India is trying to build now. Um, you know, and because what is the root of the India-Chinese rivalry? Because the two nations really had relatively little to do with each other in history. True Buddhism spread from India to China in early antiquity. Um, But besides that and a few other things, the high wall of the Himalayas led to two completely different, distinct world civilizations developing. No, what's causing this new rivalry is the collapse of distance brought about by the advancement of military technology. Uh, Example. Uh, new airfields in Tibet where, chi- where China has fighter jets whose arc of operations include India. Um, Indian warships in, in the South China Sea, Chinese warships in the Indian Ocean. As both countries expand economically, they ha- and the truth about capitalist expansion that nobody wants to admit is that capitalist expansion leads to military acquisitions. Um, It's great liberal trading empires that build great navies and air forces. Um, not uh, you know not, it, it's capitalism that leads to war and leads to in, leads to growth in militaries and and defense spending and and new technology and everything um, and India and China are now have overlapping spheres of influence that bring them into competition whereas in previous eras in history this was not the case. Um, now think about the fact that Global energy needs are going to increase by 45% by 2030, and half of those needs are going to go to India and China. China's uh, demand for crude oil is going to double over the next 20 years. Um, In other words, we're going to see uh, a web work of oil pipelines, of container ports, of shipping that's going to connect all of these places uh, remember, the Chinese built, just built a new natural gas pipeline across Central Asia into Western China, a new oil pipeline across Central Asia into Western China, all to avoid the Strait of Malacca, to get other ways to get oil and natural gas. This is the new post-Iraq, post-Afghanistan world. Um, and for the last 10 years, we have been obsessed with messy, dirty, crude ground warfare uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, where the future will be more naval and air uh, cent- um, centered, um, the Indian Navy is on its way to being the third largest navy in the world. Um, uh, Japan, so-called semi-quasi-pacifistic Japan, with de- that devotes only one point five percent of its bu- of its GDP to s- defense, has four times as many warships as the British Royal Navy today. 123 warships and they're being modernized and developed further. China will have more submarines than the United States submarine force uh, in about 10 years. Yes, China's submarines are diesel electric, ours are nuclear, but ours have to get from half a world away to the Asian theater in the first place. And secondly, diesel electric submarines are incredibly high tech, they're quieter than, nu- than nuclear subs, and better suited for the, for the brown, dirty coastal waters uh, 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 of East Asia. In fact, it's not just an arms race, that's an action-reaction arms race that's going along all through the Indo-Pacific, India plus the Western Pacific. It's a hunt, it, it's a shop-till-you-drop arms race for submarines. Everyone is buying submarines. Uh, The Vietnamese, the Malaysians, the Indonesians, uh, the Chinese, the Indians, the Japanese. Submarines, the moment they go underwater, add an element of uncertainty um, to them. Uh, Submarines are moving underwater intelligence factories. Um, The reason why subs are so popular, is because, uh, is because the new generation of, of missiles makes surface warships more vulnerable than they've ever been before. So we're entering an era um, where the 21st century is going to be an era of high-tech uh, uh, competition and perhaps conflict. Um, <clears throat> With great navies and air forces without a unipolar hegemon in the western Pacific like the United States was for most of the Cold War era. You know that um, uh, let me just conclude with with a few notes. Number one, um, the reason Asia has risen so dramatically economically since the late 1970s actually goes back to Nixon's trip to China. When Nixon went to China, he told the Chinese, forget about this fiction that Taiwan is the real China. Um, we will protect you against the Soviet Union. And um, and uh, and we will, don't worry about a rising Japan. We'll take care of that too. So China was able to devote itself internally to economic development. True, that economic development came about because of one man, Deng Xiaoping. But Deng Xiaoping would not have had the options he had Were it not for the uh, for the deal between the implicit deal between Nixon and Mao, and what that created was a unipolar naval American naval environment in the Western Pacific, so that nobody had to worry about security, and therefore everyone could devote themselves to capitalist development. Well, this benign unipolar security uh, uh, environment is ending. It's, it's going to end because of the increasingly smaller U.S. Navy, the rise of the Indian and Chinese navies, the rise of other navies, and it's going to be a more complex, multipolar military environment with more interactions and therefore more of a chance for miscalculations um, to occur. Um, let me just end with two notes about the South China Sea and Taiwan. Um, the South, Chi- South China Sea is um, it's, it's China's Caribbean um, in the sense that why did the US become a great power? because it dominated the greater Caribbean basin, which allowed it to dominate the new world with power to spare to affect the balance of power in the old world. Um, uh, China sees the South China Sea in similar terms. It seeks domination in the South China Sea because the South China Sea may, I say may, have as much oil and natural gas under the seabed as um, as in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, The South China Sea is also the throat of global sea lines of communication. Um, Half of all global shipping moves through there. It's the heart of the oil and natural gas that comes from the Middle East through the Strait of Malacca to the burgeoning middle-class flesh pots of of coastal China, South Korea, and Japan. Um, China seeks to dominate it. The Vietnamese, the Malaysians... The others say we need the United States. You know, our fallback position is the U.S. Navy and Air Force as the balancing power. So, point is, there is a cost to quasi or semi or quasi isolationism in the United States. There is a cost to you know to lowering our defense budget too much. Um, uh, there is a great cost to this because the cost will be that countries all along East Asia will no longer be fully independent, and that will add a whole new element into the world situation. Last word on Taiwan before I open it up to questions and answers. Taiwan, um, China has 1,500 short-range ballistic missiles focused on Taiwan. But there are also 270 commercial flights a week between the mainland China and Taiwan. China is gradually incorporating Taiwan. Um, it's you know it's not going to have to invade Taiwan. It's going to make an end run around Taiwan uh, Taiwanese uh, de facto independence. And as Chinese strategic planners need to concentrate less on Taiwan, that will open up their energies. to uh, to worry more about getting their Navy and Air Force beyond the first island chain in the Pacific to the second island chain, to get it into the Indian Ocean, where they can be a two ocean Navy, uh, making them a world power rather than just a regional power. Remember what happened when the Americans closed the frontier with the last battle of the Indian War in 1890. They built the Panama Canal and Teddy Roosevelt built a great Navy. Um, China making an end run around Taiwanese sovereignty will have the same effect on China as the closing of the frontier did in the United States. It will unleash China's um, strategic energies to look outward. And the only thing that can um, interrupt this vision, and this is a big thing, is if there is socioeconomic upheaval in China itself. Um, and that's the question I ask all economists: What you know? What happens when China's growth rate comes down to five percent or so? Um, what does that do to Chinese society? And will that make China more or less nationalistic? I don't have the answer to that. I leave you with that question. Thank you very much. <clears throat>
1: We're going to take the first question from a student, Brian Tony, And you've touched on this. He's a 12th grader at L.D. Bell. Which do you believe is more likely to occur, a future American-Indian-Chinese coalition or increased competitiveness? And, and maybe you could say, you know, if there is competition in India and China, what role could the United States yeah. play?
0: Uh, the rise of India economically and militarily has been the best piece of strategic good luck for the United States since the end of the Cold War since precisely because where India is located geographically, it acts as a natural hedge against China. Um, it, India does, we do not need a treaty alliance with India. Uh, and we don't need to formalize it in any way. We couldn't, because the Indian political system couldn't deal with that. Um, but you know, implicitly, the United States will encourage India... Japan and other like minded democratic others to build up their militaries. Um, as as the United States global military power recedes.
1: Questions from the floor. Yes, sir, Mr. Ambassador.
0: We see that last week
1: the Afghan government was dealing with India China, China and We yeah. you know a few months ago the Chinese were increasing their investments in mining operations in
0: eastern Afghanistan. China and India obviously have some areas where uh, along their uh, border, whether it's competing. You're coming about, uh, as we pull out of Afghanistan in 2014, uh, will there then be that friction between India and China in uh, Afghanistan, and to that matter, how about
1: Nepal and the other uh, uh, kingdoms, and so on along, along
0: the border? Yes. So, what um, would I comment on uh, Chinese and Indian in policy, investment deals in Afghanistan, and how do that, how that affects the whole region of Afghanistan, Pakistan, Nepal, etc. First of all, um, the United States keeps thinking keeps thinking of ways to leave Afghanistan. The Chinese keep thinking of ways to go in and staying. Um, uh, because the Chinese are interested in the trillions of dollars of mineral and metal uh, wealth under the ground in Afghanistan that their eventual road and pipeline network will be able to take advantage of Uh, if we were to stabilize Afghanistan that would help China's uh, grand strategy um, very much Um, India and China are competitors in many ways as I've outlined in my speech but the one place where they have similar uh, goals is Afghanistan. Uh, they both want to see a stable Afghanistan that's non-radical, is uh, fundamentalist. Um, that you know, where the Chinese can build trade routes and that the Indians can use as a lever against Pakistan, so that, um, uh, so that Pakistan is bordered by two semi-hostile states, uh, a pro-Indian Afghanistan in the west um, and, and, and India proper uh, in, um, in the east. Um, I think what, what's going to play out as the U.S. withdraws is you're going to see heightened... Uh, competition and conflict between India and Pakistan in Afghanistan. Um, that, you know, that, is, that is the drama that awaits us. Uh, the Karzai regime is pro-Indian. It's relatively secularist. Um, it gets support from the Tajiks in the north. Uh, the, you know, the Pakistan's allies, the Haqqani Network or others, uh, symbolize uh, Pashtun tribal networks emanating from Pakistan uh, into central Afghanistan um, uh, it's not out of the question that if, as we withdraw and Afghanistan falls apart that you could see instead of a division between Pakistan and Afghanistan, you would have a division in the center of Afghanistan itself at the Hindu Kush Mountains, rather than the Khyber Pass, where you would have Tajiks, Uzbeks, and Turkmen's in the north, north of the Hindu Kush, and you would have a Pashtun uh, uh, area in the south that would be connected to, you know, to the. The northwest frontier and Baluchistan areas of Pakistan. Uh, these borders are very artificial. Um, the uh, you know it's it, it, it's unclear what will develop. <clears throat> Great discussion. Um, India, excuse me, India, China mentioned all these multiple fronts of competition. What would be the flashpoints that you predict would start a possible shooting war? War see that not a, uh, I mean, how, how dangerous is that? All right, what are the flashpoints uh, that would start a possible shooting war between India and China and how dangerous is that? Notice I did not predict war between India and China. I predicted intense competition because I don't think there will be a war. I, I think there will be a lot of navy jo- naval jockeying for position with a lot of tension, but there won't be an outright war. Remember, India and China are going to comprise the world's largest bilateral trading relationship, which will stabilize Indian-Chinese relations uh, significantly. But what you can get, here's what you can get, and we saw a bit of this two weeks, three weeks ago, uh, off the coast of Vietnam, where the Vietnamese and the Indians were uh, doing uh, seismic surveys for oil, and they, they were in a zone that China claims is its own. So there was an incident. Um, and these kinds of things can, these kinds of things could multiply. Or become more intense. In this sense, the South China Sea is, is the real flashpoint of the greater Indian Ocean because everyone has overlapping claims of sovereignty in places where there's significant energy wealth. All right, what is Russia's role in this emerging rivalry and in this emerging world? Uh, India, China, Vietnam are all getting submarines from Russia. Um, uh, state-of-the-art, kilo-class diesel-electric submarines. The Russians are also selling these countries, fighter jets, etc. Uh, Russia has been able to not only keep its arms industry developing, but to actually make advances in research and technology uh, because of steady sales from countries like these. You know, this despite the fact that Russia went through economic upheaval in the 1990s um, uh, and and et cetera. Um, Russia will increasingly be a player in Northeast Asia, um, in the Russian Far East. but I see Russia's influence as mainly marginal in the greater Indian Ocean. You know, in Central Asia, the Russians are getting their pants beat off them by the Chinese. Uh, Chinese goods flood the marketplace. Um, it's China who is building pipelines more than the Russians are. The Chinese are flush with cash, the Ru- you know, more so than the Russians. Uh, Soviet, former Soviet Central Asia is never going back to the motherland because of the, you know, the great influence of the Chinese, the Iranians in the south, you know, and other factors. Mary, I'd like to ask a question about the environment and drinking water.
1: Uh, I read about
0: a, 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 a gallery in Beijing that has a show on the melting glaciers of Tibet in the mountains of the population of China has doubled in the last 30 years. Yeah. Yes, uh, Tibet is really the... Um, the tableland of water sources. From Tibet flow the uh, the Brahmaputra, the Meghna, and other great rivers into India, into Bangladesh. The Chinese are damming up these rivers. So are the Indians. This is causing drought in northern Bangladesh, even as southern Bangladesh is is dealing with rising sea levels, and the face of which is greater salinity in the soil. Um, the the environment is the environment could be the straw that breaks the camel's back in Pakistan, um, because you know Pakistan's population is you know is on the you know is going to be uh, it's not going to double it's going to go up by about forty percent over the next few decades with uh, with less and less drinking water available. Um, you know, the environment in Pakistan could make it even harder for the government to actually govern in many parts of the country. The same with India. The same with Bangladesh. Um, uh, in Vietnam, the Mekong Delta is at risk from rising sea levels. So, the environment will have a real national security impact. You know, in these places. You have time for two more questions, Anthony.
1: I am not our organization has brought you here to talk about us, we don't hear too much. I have two small questions, both related to personal
0: operations in these areas. Dressa Malaka, that problem would be semi solved if the nations that are around it would have a semi-paramilitary force or something to
1: take care of the piracy issue. That was the first question. Do you see that kind of thing happening? Second, I totally agree with you about Vietnam. The largest, best people on in, in all ages in Canberra
0: Bay, plus they have all of it. Structure that's left behind. Now, I know it's in bad shape. What do you think the chances are of our government getting into Vietnam and helping restructure that part and having what we used to have in Sugi, for example? Yeah. Okay. First of all, um, in terms of um, uh, uh, the Strait of Malacca, um, in fact, India—I I mean, Indonesia, Singapore, and Malaysia have combined naval forces to reduce piracy in the Strait of Malacca. The hidden hand behind this has been the U.S. Navy uh, which doesn't take credit but which has been doing the work behind the scenes. Um, Cameron Bay is now being redeveloped. It's being dredged, redeveloped the official Vietnamese line is so that we can welcome ships from all over the world. Um, in fact, what they want to see is more U.S. warships in Cameron Bay, um, and um, of course. But you now here's the, the here's the the subtlety with U.S. Vietnamese relations because Vietnam has a long border with China and the U.S. is half a world away, Vietnam can never be a treaty ally of the U.S. because it has to get along with China. Um, um, it's kind of like India. There can never be a treaty alliance, but, but there can be an informal military alliance, This is which is what there is gonna be. Um, You know, they'll invite the Indian Navy, the Russian Navy into Cameron Bay, but it's our Navy that they're really interested in in having visited, uh, in visiting. And that's going to take place sooner than you think. Um, uh, I I believe the U.S. is on the verge of announcing several military cooperation agreements with Vietnam. Uh, Yeah, excuse me. China is developing a real global class of English speakers, uh, you know, who can operate very well in global forums. Um, I was told so just then, recently that every yeah.
1: Chinese child ha- takes English up through the high school. Yeah, I don't know if that's accurate, but that's what I was told.
0: So, um, so I think China, China is going to be able to compete within, with India in this regard. I understand the Bush doctrine has something to do with um, encouraging democracies and <clears throat> analyzing non-democracies I recently read a book about Burma uh, called "The India and Chinese," and this kind of Bush doctrine seems to really be impeding uh, the effectiveness of the United yeah. States in these regions um, is there some point where this naive concept is going to fall away maybe replaced with something around economic freedom instead of yeah. Kind of thing, or is just going to have to happen because we we'll just get so far behind if you stand on that? Principle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah um, actually, you're anticipating reality. In fact, what's developing. Um, here's what's developing. At the end of the Bush administration, uh, Senator Webb of Virginia taking the lead had basically come to the conclusion that if we just stand – do nothing in Burma, and preach from the sidelines about democracy, uh, China's going to make it their next satellite. Um, so we have to try some engagement.
1: Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of
0: Haynes & Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Um, and in fact, India's involvement in Burma is very suitable for U.S. national interests. Because if we're not going to compete with China in Burma, it's good that the Indians are so to speak. But so we tried this engagement. Senator Webb, Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and the Pacific, Kurt Campbell, did their best to engage Burma. Um, uh, uh, Secretary Campbell made a trip to uh, Nap- N- Napia, you know, the capital of, the new capital of, uh, of, of Burma. Um, their results were, I wouldn't say nothing, but they've been meager. Uh, Burma has a new, a new semi-civilian government. The Burmese surprised the world community two weeks ago when they stopped that Chinese dam project in the northern part of their country, which was the first time that Burma broke with China uh, on an important issue. Um, so we're starting to see signs that Burma is pushing back against China, and we are trying engagement in, you know, in any way we can. We're trying to get beyond this. We can't deal with you because you're not a democracy.
1: Thank you very much, Robert. My Capuano. pleasure. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld dot org.